Welcome to the Only You Podcast. This is our second season. It's your boy, Lo Jackson. Today, I'm going to be going over a book that I found years ago that I find this writer is a true human being, that I find his works um, actually very impressive. Uh, he has written many books. He was brought up <clears throat> um, in an actual a Russian Orthodox um, church home and at 18 he lost his religion and lived a life of pretty much uh, debauchery but in his early 50s he wanted some source of intellectual security so he actually started really questioning people on um, Christianity and Jesus Christ and he started doing more books and his name is this gentleman's name is Leo Tolstoy he is a wonderful writer, and today I'm going to be <clears throat> sharing with you one of his books that I find to be one of the greatest books I've ever read, really. Um, Leo Tolstoy was born on the 9th of September, 1828, and he had the unfortunate death on November 20th, 1910. He lived to be 82 years old. Um, he was, like I said before, he was born to an aristocrat, aristocrat Russian family in 1828. Tolstoy's notable works include the novels War and Peace and Anna Karina. And the book Anna Karina, <clears throat> um, it really took a toll on him. You know, there are two things um, about Leo Tolstoy that are true. Um, first, he had mostly given up on fiction, having published his two Titanic novels, War and Peace and Anna Karina. The latter book exhausted him physically and morally, and not long after his appearance, he termed his saga of adultery an abomination. He literally did not like that novel at all, and he found um, novel writing to be a poor substitute for confronting religious issues and his extantial lot and second because of his early literary uh, acclaim and the immoral lifestyle it had spawned uh, and enabled he was miserable pretty much for a long time he was so ashamed of himself that he uh, post of Karenina his ambivalent atheism collapsed and if you don't know anything about atheism like when they say far right some people think that them people are like atheists that they think that people can govern themselves and they don't need that much government in their lives and then when they say far left it means that them type of people believe that you know people need the government to help them and they the government needs to be involved in every single aspect of human life on earth and that no humans can govern themselves but i just thought i would share that with you um leo tolstoy actually sought a new relationship to the truth he abdicated um and if you don't know what abdicated is, it's to formally give up on sovereign power, office, or responsibility. The throne of novelists, he, 
and took up the mantle of religious critic on the side of Christianity and against it. Um, After a life of debauchery, in his early 50s, he wanted religion or some source of intellectual security, and I had told you that earlier. In 1882, uh, Tolstoy published his Confession, a retrospective analysis of the previous five years in which his midlife crisis of faith and um, unbalanced literary and philosophical bearings. It is... Among the oddest of Christian tell-alls, a treaty searching for its own focal truth. Um, Throughout the spiritual fortitude that he embraced, um, he said, Is there any meaning in my life that wouldn't be destroyed by the death that inevitably awaits me? Readers know that the title has no a or the attached and there are no articles in Russian, but this particular absence in English is meaningful. The singular noun by itself emphasizes its currency. Early on in the book, he asserts in defiance that Christian teachings plays no part in life. One never comes across it in one's relations with others and never has to deal with it in one's own life. He pegs believers as stupid, cruel, and immoral people who think themselves very important. He tags unbelievers as the finest people he knows. They have intelligence, honesty, uprightness, goodness of heart, and morality. He renounces religion in favor of reading and thinking, in essence, reason, and recalls that five years prior, my only real faith was a faith in self-perfection. And if anybody knows anything about perfection, we as human beings struggle quite a bit with um, um, perfection because perfectionism causes us to have so many um, disconnects because... You know, when we're not perfect, we... So, like, human beings are the only animal on the planet that make one mistake, and they punish themselves and repeat that mistake in their mind thousands and thousands of times. So, you know, a cat finds a piece of fish laying near a trash can, and he goes over to it, and he starts to think he's going to eat it. Well, this other cat comes up and slaps him around, and that cat runs off. Well, you know, a week later... The cat that got slapped around, he's not rethinking that about that other cat slapping him around. No, he let it go. He moved on, and now he's out surviving, hunting, and doing what he is supposed to do, which is you know forging for food, sleeping, and living his life. But we as humans struggle with that because of perfectionism and. We have to be perfect in everything. So at work, you know, we make a mistake at work and here we are like, oh my God, you're not perfect. You know, we're not thinking that openly, but our subconscious mind, because we are taught to be um, judges, you know, we judge everything we do. So if we're not perfect and there's something obviously wrong with us and the judge in our mind is trying to hold us accountable for shortcomings that in reality 
are only human mistakes and that we need to learn to let go of and move forward and um, be open to. Because also as human beings, we tend to abuse ourselves more than anybody we ever come across in our whole lives. And I chose this book, What Men Live By Today, to read to you because I want you to know that there will come a day that you meet somebody and this somebody will actually rub you raw, make you upset, will make you question whether you love them, whether you should leave them, or whether they have actually literally driven you so beyond love that you want to leave no matter what and you fight this person constantly but in reality this person never touches the abuse that your mind forces you to be in and once you find that person and they don't abuse you quite as much as you abuse yourself and your mind you will then stay with that person forever. Thank you for listening to the Only You podcast. Please follow me and share me. I've been doing this for two years. I've actually ran some polls on this podcast. And, you know, I do actually have, like, a lot of great fans. I'm so thankful for you guys. And I'm thankful for the ones that share me and that put me out there or tell me that I'm actually doing a good job. I'm trying I started taking a new supplement called ashwagandha and it is actually helping my focus, my mental stability and I found another product that I'm actually taking which is uh, Conscious Mind by the brand Genius. I want to give a shout out to those companies that are making those products because it's a natural way to um, relieve stress and gain focus, clarity. And honestly, as we age, we just don't realize how distraught and unfocused our minds can get just in one year of, say, like COVID or going back to the drawing board with your families and, um, you know, losing focus and clarity because you have so much um, unanswered trauma or past tragedies and deaths, uh, illnesses, because a lot of us out here are getting sicker now than we ever have before and it's unfortunate but thank you guys for tuning in and like i said thank you for sharing me today i'm going to be reading what men live by and this is one of my favorite um books or stories that leo tolstoy wrote and i hope you guys will check him out i'm going to read some more of his in the upcoming month because i find him to be one of my favoriteest writers and here we go a shoemaker named simon who had neither house nor land of his own, lived with his wife and children in a peasant's hut and earned his living by his work. Work was cheap, but bread was dear, and what he earned he spent for food. The man and his wife had not one sheepskin, but one sheepskin coat between them for winter wear, and even that was torn to tatters, and this was the second year he had been wanting to buy sheepskins for a new coat. Before winter, Simon saved up a little money. Three ruble note lay hidden in his wife's box, and five rubles and twenty kopecks were owed him by customers in the village. And kopecks are actually change, and rubles are dollars. 
So, one morning he prepared to go to the village to buy the sheepskins. He put on over his shirt his wife's wadded nankin jacket, and over that he put his own cloth coat. He took the three-ruble note in his pocket, cut himself a stick of serve as a oh, he cut himself a stick to serve as a staff, and started off after breakfast. I'll collect the five rubles that are due to me, thought he. Added the three I have got, and that will be enough to buy sheepskins for the winter coat. He came to the village and called at a peasant's hut, but the man was not home. The peasant's wife promised that the money should be paid next week, but she would not pay it herself. Then Simon called on another peasant, but this one swore he had no money and would only pay 20 kopecks, which he owed for a pair of boots Simon had mended. Simon then tried to buy the sheepskins on credit, but the dealer would not trust him. Bring your money, said he, then you may have your pick of the skins. We know what debt collecting is like, so all the business the shoemaker did was to get 20 kopecks for boots he had mended and to take a pair of felt boots a peasant gave him to sole with leather. Simon felt downhearted. He spent the 20 kopecks on vodka, hence why I shared to you, we as humans, pay for our mistakes over and over in our heads many times. And this is a part of that right here. And started homeward without having bought any skins. In the morning, he had felt the frost, but now, after drinking the vodka, he felt warm, even without a sheepskin coat. He trudged along, skirting his stick on the frozen earth with one hand, swinging the felt boots with the other, and talking to himself. I'm quite warm, said he, though I have no sheepskin coat. See, and here comes the, you know, abusing himself because, you know, he actually took those 20 kopecks and went and bought vodka when he shouldn't have. I'm quite warm, said he, though I have no sheepskin coat. I've had a drop and it runs through my veins. I need no sheepskins. I go along and don't worry about anything. That's the sort of man I am. What do I care? See, he's already blaming right there. I can live without sheepskins. I don't need them. My wife will fret to be sure. And true enough, it is a shame. One works all day long and then does not get paid. Stop a bit. If you don't bring that money along, sure enough, I'll skin you, blessed if I don't. How's that? He pays 20 kopecks at a time. What can I do with 20 kopecks? Drink it. That's all I one can do. Hard up, he says he is. So, he may be, but what about me? You have a house and cattle and everything. I've only what I stand up in. You have corn of your own growing. I have to buy every bit of grain. Do what I will. I must spend three rubles every week for bread alone. I come home and find the bread all used up, and then I have to fork out another ruble and a half. So just pay up what you owe and no nonsense about it. By this time, he had nearly reached the shrine at the bend of the road. Looking up, he saw something whitish behind the shrine. 
The daylight was fading and the shoemaker peered at the thing without being able to make out what it was. There was no white stone here before. Can it be an ox? It's not like an ox. It has a head like a man, but it's too white. What could a man be doing there? Because remember, it's cold outside. He came closer so that it was clearly visible. To his surprise, it really was a man, alive or dead, sitting naked, leaning motionless against the shrine. Terror seized the shoemaker, and he thought, someone has killed him, stripped him, and left him there. If I meddle, I shall surely get into trouble. So the shoemaker went on. And I remind you, folks, that this was written probably in 1870. He passed in front of the shrine so that he could not see the man. When he had gone some way, he looked back and saw that the man was no longer leaning against the shrine, but was moving as if looking towards him. The shoemaker felt more frightened than before and thought, Shall I go back to him? Or shall I go on? If I go near him, something dreadful may happen. Who knows who the fellow is? He is not yet here for any good. He is not come here for any good. If I go near him, he may jump up and throttle me. And there will be no getting away. Or, if not, he'd be stricken, be a burden, excuse me, or if not, he'd still be a burden on one's hands. What could I do with a naked man? I couldn't give him my clothes. Heaven only helped me to get away. So the shoemaker hurried on, leaving the shrine behind him, when suddenly his conscience smote him, and he stopped in the road. What are you doing, Simon? said he to himself. The man may be dying of want, and you slip past, afraid. Have you grown so rich to be afraid of robbers? Ah, Simon, shame on you. So he turned back and went up to the man. Simon approached the stranger, looked at him, and saw that he was a young man, fit, with no bruises on his body, only evidently freezing and frightened. And he sat there, leaning back without looking up at Simon, as if too faint to lift his eyes. Simon went close to him. Then the man seemed to wake up. Turning his head, he opened his eyes and looked into Simon's face. That one look was enough to make Simon fond of the man. He threw his felt boots on the ground, undid his sash, laid it on the boots, and took off his cloth coat. It's not time for talking, said he. Come put this coat on at once. And Simon took the man by the elbows and helped him to rise. As he stood there, Simon saw that his body was clean and in good condition his hands and feet shapely, and his face good 
and kind. He threw his coat over the man's shoulders, but the latter could not find the sleeves. Simon guided his arms unto them, and drawing the coat well on, wrapped it closely about him, tying the sash round the man's waist. Simon even took off his torn cap to put it on the man's head, but then his own head felt cold, and he thought, I'm quite bald, while his long curly hair while well, he has long curly hair so he put his cap on his own head again <laughs> it will be better to give him something for his feet thought he and he made the man sit down and helped him to put on the felt boots saying there friend now move about and warm yourself other mothers can be settled later on can you walk the man stood up and looked kindly at Simon, but could not say a word. Why do you speak, said Simon. Why don't you speak, said Simon. It's too cold to stay here. We must be getting home. There, now take my stick, and if you're feeling weak, lean on that. Now step out. The man started walking and moved easily, not lagging behind. As they went on, Simon asked him, and where do you belong to? I'm not from these parts. I thought as much. I know the folks hereabouts, but how did you come to be there by the shrine? I can't tell you. Has someone been ill-treating you? No one has ill-treated me. God has punished me. Of course God rules all. Still, you'll have to find food and shelter somewhere. Where do you want to go? It is all the same to me. Simon was amazed. The man did not look like a rogue, and he spoke gently, but yet he gave no account of himself. Still, Simon thought, who knows what may have happened? And he said to the stranger, well then, come home with me and at least warm yourself a while. So Simon walked towards his home, and the stranger kept up with him, walking at his side. The wind had risen, and Simon felt its cold under his shirt. He was getting over his tippiness by now, and began to feel the frost. He went along sniffling and wrapping his wife's coat around him, and he thought to himself, There, now talk about sheepskins. I went out for sheepskins and came home without even a coat to my back. And what is more, I am bringing a naked man along with me. Matrona won't be pleased, and when he thought of his wife, he felt sad. But then, when he looked at the stranger and remembered how he had looked up at him at the shrine, his heart was glad. Simon's wife had everything ready early that day. She had cut wood, brought water, fed the children, eaten her own meal, and now she sat thinking. She wondered when she ought to make bread, now or tomorrow. There was still a large piece left. If Simon has had some dinner in town, thought she, and does not eat much for supper, 
the bread will last for another day. She weighed the piece of bread in her hand again and again and thought, I won't make any more today. We have only enough flour left to make one batch. We can manage to make this last out until Friday. So Matrona put away the bread and sat down at the table to patch her husband's shirt. While she worked, she thought how her husband was buying sheepskins for a winter coat. If only the dealer does not cheat him. My good man is much too simple. He cheats nobody, but any child can take him in. Eight rubles is a lot of money. He should get a good coat at that price, not tan skins and still a proper winter coat. How difficult it was last winter to get on without a warm coat. I could neither get down to the river nor go out anywhere. When he went out, he put on all he had and where, excuse me, and there was nothing left for me. He did not start very early today, but still it's time he'd be back. I only hope he has gone on, I only hope he has not gone on the spree. See, and now she's worrying. Hardly had Matrona thought this when steps were heard on the threshold and someone entered. Matrona stuck her needle into her work and went out into the passage. There she saw two men, Simon, and with him a man without a hat and wearing the felt boots. Matrona noticed at once that her husband smelled of spirits. You know, and recently I have read and studied that in some Bibles, spirits were called sorceries because it causes people to do crazy things. There now, as I am assuming that, <laughs> there now he has been drinking, thought she. And when she saw that he was coatless, had only her jacket on, brought no parcels, stood there silent and seemed ashamed. Her heart was ready to break with disappointment. He has drunk the money, thought she, and has been on the spree with some good-for-nothing fellow whom he has brought home with him. Matrona let them pass into the hut, followed them in, and saw that the stranger was a young, slight man wearing her husband's coat. There was no shirt to be seen under it, and he had no hat. Having entered, he stood neither moving nor raising his eyes, and Matrona thought, he must be a bad man. He's afraid. Matrona frowned and stood beside the oven, looking to see what they would do. Simon took off his cap and sat down on the bench as if things were all right. Come, Matrona, if supper is ready, let us have some. Matrona muttered something to herself and did not move, but stayed where she was by the oven. She looked first at the one and then at the other of them and shook her head. Simon saw that his wife was annoyed, but tried to pass it off, pretending not to notice anything. He took the stranger by the arm. Sit down, friend, said he. Let us have some supper. The stranger sat down on the bench. Haven't you cooked anything for us, said Simon. Matrona's anger boiled over. I've cooked, but not for you. It seems to me you have drunk your wits away. You went to buy a sheepskin coat, but come home without so much as the coat you had on and bring 
a naked vagabond with you. I have no supper for drunkards like you. That's enough, Matrona. Don't wag your tongue without reason. You had better ask that sort of man. Excuse me. You had better ask what sort of man. And you tell me what you've done with the money. Simon found the pocket of the jacket, drew out the three-ruble note, and unfolded it. Here is the money. Trufanoff did not pay, but promises to pay soon. Matrona got still more angry. He had b- bought no sheepskins, but had put his only coat on some naked fellow and had even brought him to their house. She snatched up the note from the table, took it to put away in safety, and said, I have no supper for you. We can't feed all the naked drunkards in the world. There now, Matrona, hold your tongue a bit. First, hear what a man has to say. Much wisdom I shall hear from a drunken fool. I was right in not wanting to marry you, a drunkard. The linen my mother gave me, you drank. And now you've been to buy a coat and have drunk it too. Simon tried to explain to his wife that he had only spent 20 kopecks, tried to tell how he had found the man, but Patrona would not let him get a word in. She talked 19 to a dozen and dragged in things that had happened 10 years before. Matrona talked and talked, and at at last she flew at Simon and seized him by the sleeve. Give me my jacket. It is the only one I have. And you must needs take it from me and wear it yourself. Give it here, you mangy dog, and may the devil take you. Simon began to pull off the jacket and turned his sleeve of it inside out. Matrona seized the jacket and it burst at the seams. She snatched it up, threw it over her head, and went to the door. She meant to go out, but stopped undecided. She wanted to work off her anger, but she also wanted to learn what sort of man the stranger was. Matrona stopped and said, If he were a good man... He would not be naked. Why, he hasn't even a shirt on him. If he were all right, you would say where you came across the fellow. That's just what I am trying to tell you, said Simon. As I came to the shrine, I saw him sitting all naked and frozen. It isn't quite the weather to sit about naked. God sent him to me, or he would have perished. What was I to do? How do we know what may have happened to him? So I took him, clothed him, and brought him along. Don't be so angry, Matrona. It is a sin. Remember, we all must die one day. See, in earlier she brought up things that had happened 10 years before that because, like I had said also earlier, Humans are the only animal that punish themselves thousands and thousands of times. And when you bring up a fight from 10 years ago, you have been badgering yourself about that fight, about something you did because of the perfection mechanism inside the human brain that we are brought up around that we we need to be understanding of it and learn how to cultivate it. Angry words rose to Matrona's lips. But once she looked at the stranger and was silent, 
He sat on the edge of the bench motionless, his hands folded on his knees, his head drooping on his breast, his eyes closed, his bowels knit as if in pain. Matrona was silent, and Simon said, Matrona, have you no love of God? Matrona heard those words, and as she looked at the stranger, suddenly her heart softened towards him. She came back from the door, and going to the oven, she got out the supper. See now, I also told you earlier that no one in the whole world ever abuses you as much as you abuse yourself, but you're going to find that person that one day that is good to you to the extent that you don't abuse yourself. Let, you know, they, they'll abuse you in a kind of way, but not as bad as you abuse yourself. That's pretty much what I'm getting at. Setting a cup on the table, she poured out some kavaz. And if you don't know what KVAS is, it's a fermented cereal-based low-alcohol beverage with a slightly cloudy appearance, light brown in color, sweet, sour taste, and it may be flavored with berries, herbs. Um, and it originates in northeastern Europe, and it was pretty much like a, um, I believe, like a, a grain product. Because once you start reading like older stories, you start to learn that. Um, you know, a lot of words are, you know, not used anymore. Then she brought out the last piece of bread and set out a knife and spoons. Eat if you want to, she said. Simon drew the stranger to the table. Take your place, young man, said he. Simon cut the bread, crumbled it into the broth, and began to eat. Matrona sat at the corner of the table, resting her head on her hand, looking at the stranger. And Matrona was touched with pity for the stranger and began to feel fond of him. And at once the stranger's face lit up. His brows were no longer bent. He raised his eyes and smiled at Matrona. When they had finished supper, the woman cleared away the things and began questioning the stranger. Where are you from? She said. I am not from these parts. But how did you come to be on the road? I may not tell you. Did someone rob you? God has punished me. And you were lying there naked? Yes, naked and freezing. Simon saw me and had pity on me. He took off his coat, put it on me, and brought me here. And you have fed me, given me drink, and shown pity on me. God will reward you. Matrona rose, took from the window Simon's old shirt she had been patching, and gave it to the stranger. She also brought out a pair of trousers for him. There, said she, I see you have no shirt. Put this on and lie down where you please. In the loft or on the oven. And back in those days, there was a spot on the oven that you could actually stretch out on and warm yourself once the fire burned down low. The stranger took off the coat, put on the shirt, and lay in the loft. Patrona put out the candle, took the coat, and climbed to where her husband lay. Matrona drew the skirts of the coat over her and lay down, but could not sleep. She could not get the stranger 
out of her mind. When she remembered that he had eaten their last piece of bread and that there was none for tomorrow and thought of the shirt and trousers she had given away, she felt grieved. And when she remembered how he had smiled, her heart was glad. Long did Petrona lie awake and she noticed that Simon also was awake. He drew the coat towards him. Simon, well... You have had the last of the bread and have not put any to rise. I don't know what we shall do tomorrow. Perhaps I can borrow some from the neighbor Martha. If we're alive, we shall find something to eat. The woman lay still a while and then said, He seems a good man, but why does he not tell us who he is? I suppose he has his reasons. Simon, well... We give, but why does nobody give us anything? Simon did not know what to say, so he only said, Let us stop talking, and turned over and went to sleep. In the morning, Simon awoke. The children were still asleep. His wife had gone to the neighbors to borrow some bread. The stranger alone was sitting on the bench dressed in the old shirt and trousers and looking upwards. His face was brighter than it had been the day before. Simon said to him, Well, friend, the belly wants bread and the naked body clothes. One has to work for a living. What work do you know? I do not know any. This surprised Simon, but he said, Men who want to learn can learn anything. Men work, and I will work also. What is your name? Michael. Well, Michael, if you don't wish to talk about yourself, that is your own affair, but you'll have to earn a living for yourself. If you will work as I tell you, I will give you food and shelter. May God reward you. I will learn. Show me what to do. Simon took yarn, put it round his thumb, and began to twist it. It is easy, though, see? Michael watched him put some yarn around his own thumb, in the same way, caught the knack, and twisted the yarn also. Then Simon showed him how to wax the thread. This also Michael mastered. Next, Simon showed how to twist the bristle in, and how to sew, and this too, Michael learned at once. Whatever Simon showed him, he understood at once, and after three days he worked as if he had sewn boots all his life. He worked without stopping and ate little. When work was over, he sat silently looking upwards. He hardly went into the street, spoke only when necessary, and neither joked nor laughed. They never saw him smile except that first evening when Matrona gave them supper. Day by day and week by week, the year went round. Michael lived and worked with Simon. His fame spread till people said, that no one sewed boots so neatly and strongly as Simon's workman, Michael. And from all the district round, people came to Simon for their boots, and he began to be well off. One winter day, as Simon and Michael sat working, a carriage on sled runners with three horses with bells drove up to the hut. They looked out the window, the carriage stopped at the door, 
A fine servant jumped down from the box and opened the door. A gentleman in a fur coat got out and walked up to Simon's hut. Up jumped Matrona and opened the door wide. The gentleman stooped to enter the hut, and when he drew himself up again, his head nearly reached the ceiling. He seemed quite to fill his end of the room. Simon rose, bowed, and looked at the gentleman with astonishment. He had never seen anyone like him. Simon himself was lean, Michael was thin, and Matrona was dry as a bone. But this man was like someone from another world, red-faced, burly, with a neck like a bull's, looking altogether as if he were cast in iron. The gentleman puffed, threw off his fur coat, sat down on the bench and said, Which of you is the master bootmaker? I am your excellency, said Simon. Come forward. Then the gentleman shouted to his lad, Hey, Fedka, bring the leather. The servant ran in, bringing a parcel. The gentleman took the parcel and put it on the table. Untie it, said he. The lad untied it. The gentleman pointed to the leather. Look here, shoemaker, said he. Do you see this leather? Yes, your honor. But do you know what sort of leather it is? Simon felt the leather and said, It is of good leather. Good indeed. Why, you fool, you never saw such leather before in your life. It's German and cost 20 rubles. Simon was frightened and said, Where should I ever see leather like this again? Just so. Now can you make it into boots for me? Yes, your excellency, I can. Then the gentleman shouted at him, You can, can you? Well, whom you are to make them for, and what the leather is. You must make me boots that will wear for a year, neither losing shape nor coming unsewn. If you can do it, take the leather and cut it up. But if you can't say so, I warn you now, if your boots become unsewn or lose shape within a year, I will have you put in prison. If you don't burst or lose, if they don't burst or lose shape in a year, I will pay you ten rubles for your work. Simon was frightened and did not know what to say. He glanced at Michael and nudged him with his elbow, whispered, Shall I take the work? Michael nodded his head as if to say, Yes, take it. Simon did as Michael advised and undertook to make boots that were not lose shape or split for a whole year. Calling his servant, the gentleman told him to pull the boot off his left leg, which he stretched out. Take my measure, said he. Simon stitched a paper measure 17 inches long, smoothed it out, felt down, wiped his head and hand well on his apron so as not to soil the gentleman's sock and began to measure. He began to measure the calf of the leg, but the paper was too short. The calf of the leg was as thick as a beam. Mind you don't make it too tight in the leg. Simon stitched on another strip of paper. The gentleman twitched his toes about in his sock, looking round at those in the hut. As he did so, he noticed Michael. Whom have you there? asked he. 
That is my workman. He will sew the boots. Mind, said the gentleman to Michael. Remember to make them so that they will last me a full year. Simon also looked at Michael and saw that Michael was not looking at the gentleman, but was gazing into the corner behind the gentleman as if he saw some someone there. Michael looked and looked, and suddenly he smiled, and his face became brighter. "'What are you grinning at, you fool?' thundered the gentleman. "'He had better look to it that the boots are ready in time.' "'They shall be ready in good time,' said Michael. "'Mind, it is so,' said the gentleman. And he put on his boot and his fur coat, wrapped the letter around him, and went to the door. But he forgot to stoop and struck his head, against the lintel. He swore and rubbed his head. Then he took his seat in the carriage and drove away. When he had gone, Simon said, there's a figure of a man for you. He could not kill him. With, you could not kill him with a mallet. He almost knocked out the lintel, but little harm it did to him. And Matrona said, living as he does, how should he not grow strong. Death itself can't touch such a rock as that. This story also reminds me, Low Jackson, of uh, David and Goliath. Right here at this point. Then Simon said to Michael, Well, we have taken the work, but we must see we won't get into trouble over it. The leather is dear and the gentleman hot-tempered. We must make no mistakes. See, now Simon's really intelligent. He really um, breaks down everything into simple terms. The leather is dear and the gentleman hot-tempered. We must make no mistakes. Come, your eye is truer and your hands more have become more nimbler than mine. So you take that measure and cut out the boots. I will finish off. The sewing of the vamps. I want to tell you guys what vamps are too. A vamp is um, a short, simple uh, stitch. It's a excuse me. It's the upper front part of a boot or a shoe. Michael didn't as he was told. He took the leather, spread it out on the table, folded it into took a knife and began to cut out. Matrona came out, watched him cutting, and was surprised to see how he was doing it. Matrona was accustomed to seeing boots made, and she looked and saw that Michael was not cutting the leather for boots, but was cutting it round. She wished to say something, but she thought to herself, perhaps I do not understand how gentlemen's boots should be made. I, I suppose Michael knows more about it, and I won't interfere. When Michael had cut up the leather, he took a thread and began to sew, not with two ends, as boots are sewn, but with a single end, as for soft slippers. Again, Matrona wondered, but again, she did not interfere. Michael sewed on steadily till noon. Then Simon rose for dinner, looked around and saw that Michael had made slippers out of the gentleman's leather. Oh, groaned Simon, and he thought, how is it that Michael, who has been with me a whole year, 
and never made a mistake before should do such a dreadful thing. The gentleman ordered high boots, welted, with front fonts, and Michael has made soft slippers with single soles, and has wasted the leather. What am I to say to this gentleman? I can never, ever replace leather such as this. And he said to Michael, What are you doing, friend? You have ruined me. You know the gentleman ordered high boots. But see what you have made. Hardly had he begun to rebuke Michael when rat-a-tat. When the iron ring that hung at the door, someone was knocking. They looked out of the window. A man had come on horseback and was fastening his horse. They opened the door, and the servant who had been with the gentleman came in. Good day, said he. Good day, replied Simon. What can we do you for? My mistress has sent me about the boots. What about the boots? Why, my master no longer needs them. He is dead. Is it possible? He did not live to get home after leaving you, but died in the carriage. When he reached home, and the servant's came to help him alight. He rolled over like a sack. He was dead already and so stiff that he could hardly be got out of the carriage. My mistress sent me here saying, tell the bootmaker that the gentleman who ordered boots of him and left the leather for them no longer needs the boots, but that he must quickly make soft slippers for the corpse. Wait till they are ready and bring them back with you. That is why I have come. Michael gathered up the remnants of the leather, rolled them up, took the soft slipper that he had made, slapped them together, wiped them down for with his apron, and handed them and the roll of leather to the servant, who took them and said, Goodbye, masters, and good day to you. Another year passed, and another, and Michael was now living his sixth year with Simon. He lived as before. He went nowhere, only spoke when necessary, and had only smiled twice in all those years. Once when Matrona gave him food, and the second time when the gentleman was in their hut, Simon was more than pleased with his workmen. He, he never now asked him where he came from, and only feared least Michael should ever go away. They were all at home one day. Matrona was putting iron pots in the oven and children were running along on the benches and looked out of the window. Simon was sewing at one window and Michael was fastening on a heel at the other. One of the boys ran along the bench to Michael, leant on his shoulder and looked out of the window. Look, Uncle Michael, there is a lady with little girls. She seemed to be coming here and one of the girls is lame. And I don't know if you guys know what lame meant back then, but it was um, lame usually was a term given to people with deformities or um, maybe they had autism and they weren't sure what was wrong with them. When the boy said that, Michael dropped his work, turned to the window and looked out into the street. Simon was surprised. Michael never used to look out into the street, but now he pressed against the window staring at something. Simon also looked out and saw that a 
well-dressed woman was really coming into his hut, leading by the hand of two little girls in fur coats and woolen shawls. The girls could hardly be told one from another, except one of them was crippled in her left leg and walked with a limp. The woman stepped into the porch and entered the passage. Feeling about for the entrance, she found the latch, which she lifted, and the door opened. She let the girls go in first and followed them into the hut. Good day, good folk. Pray come in, said Simon. What can we do for you? If only here in America we greeted people with the word pray. Pray come in. (laughs) How sweet that sounds. The woman sat down by the table. The two little girls pressed close to her knees, afraid of the people in the hut. I want leather shoes made for these two little girls for spring. Oh, we can do that. We never have made such small shoes, but we can make them, either welted or turned over shoes, linen, lined. My man Michael is a master at the work. Simon glanced at Michael and saw that he had left his work and was sitting with his eyes fixed on the little girls. Simon was surprised. It was true the girls were pretty with black eyes, plump and rosy-cheeked, and they wore nice kerchiefs and fur coats, but Simon could not understand why Michael should look at them like that, just as if he had known them before. He was puzzled, but went on talking with the woman and arranging the price. Having fixed it, he prepared the measurements. The woman lifted the lame girl onto her lap and said, Take two measurements from this little girl. Make me one shoe for the lame foot and three for the sound one. They both have the same size feet. They are twins. Simon took the measurement and asked, speaking of the lame girl, said, How did it happen to her? She is such a pretty girl. She was born so? No. Her mother crushed her leg. Then Matrona joined in. She wondered who this woman was and whose the children were. So she said, Are you not their mother then? No, my good woman. I am neither their mother nor any relation to them. They were quite strangers to me, but I adopted them. They are not your children, and yet you are so fond of them. How can I help being fond of them? I fed them both from my own breast. I had a child of my own, but God took him. I was not so fond of him as I now am of them. Then whose children are they? The woman, having begun talking, told them the whole story. It is about six years since their parents died, both in one week. Their father was buried on the Tuesday, and their mother died on the Friday. These orphans were born three days after their father's death, and their mother did not live another day. My husband and I were living as peasants in the village. We were neighbors of theirs. Our yard being next to theirs, their father was a lonely man, a woodcutter in the forest. When felling trees one day, they let one fall on him. It fell across his body and crushed his bowels bowels outward. They hardly got him home before his soul went to God. And that same week his mother, excuse me, and that same week his wife 
gave birth to twins, these little girls. She was poor and alone. She had no one, young or old, with her. Alone she gave them birth, and alone she met her death. The next morning I went to see her, but when I entered the hut, she, poor thing, was already stark and cold, and dying she had rolled on to this child and crushed her sweet leg. The village folk came to the hut, washed the body, laid her out, made her a coffin, and buried her. They were good folk. The babies were left alone. What was to be done with them? I was the only woman there who had a baby at this time. I was nursing my firstborn, eight weeks old, so I took them for a time. The peasants came together, and I thought, and thought what to do with them. And at last, they said to me, For the present, Mary, you had keep you had better keep the girls, and later on we will arrange what to do with them. So I nursed the sound one at my breast, but at first I did not feed this crippled one. I did not suppose she would live, but then I thought to myself, Why then I, excuse me, but then I thought to myself, why should the poor innocent suffer? I pitied her and began to feed her. And so I fed her and I, excuse me, so I fed, and so I fed my own boy and these two, the three of them at my own breast. I was young and strong and had good food and God gave me so much milk that at times it even overflowed. I used sometimes to feed two at a time while the third was waiting. When one had enough, I nursed the third, and God so ordered it that these grew up while my own was buried before he was two years old. And I had no more children, though we prospered. Now my husband is working for the corn merchant at the mill. The children of my own, and how lonely I should be without these girls these sweet little girls. How can I help loving them? They are the joy of my life. She pressed the lame little girl the, with one hand. With the other, she wiped the tears from her cheeks. And Matrona sighed and said, The proverb is true that says, One may live without father or mother, but one cannot live without God. So they talked together when suddenly the whole hut was lightened up as though by summer lightning from the corner where Michael sat. They all looked towards him and saw him sitting, his hands folded on his knees, gazing upwards and smiling. The woman went away with the girls. Michael rose from the bench, put down his work, took off his apron then bowing low to Simon and his wife, he said, Farewell, masters. God has forgiven me. I ask your forgiveness, too, for anything done amiss. And they saw that a light shone from Michael. And Simon rose, bowed down to Michael, and said, I see, Michael, that you were no common man, and I can neither keep you nor question you. Only tell me this. How is it that you, when I found you, 
and brought you home, you were gloomy. And when my wife gave you food, you smiled at her and became brighter. Then when the gentleman came to order the boots, you smiled again and became brighter still. And now, when the woman brought the little girls, you smiled a third time and have become as bright as the day. Tell me, Michael, why does your face shine so bright? And why did you smile those three times? And Michael answered, Light shines from me because I have been punished, but now God has pardoned me. And I smile three times because God sent me to learn three truths, and I have learnt them. One, I learnt when your wife pitied me, and that is why I smiled the first time. The second, I learned when the rich man ordered the boots, and then I smiled again. And now, when I saw those little girls, I learned the third and last truth, and I smiled the third time. And Simon said, Tell me, Michael, what did God punish you for? And what were the three truths that I too may know them? And Michael answered, God punished me for disobeying him. I was an angel in heaven, and I disobeyed God. God sent me to fetch a woman's soul. I flew to earth and saw a sick woman lying alone, whom had just given birth to tw two twin girls. They move feebly at their mother's side, but she could not lift them to her breast. When she saw me, she understood that God had sent me. For her soul, she wept and said, Angel of God, my husband has just been buried, killed by a falling tree. I have neither sister, nor aunt, nor mother, nor one to care for my orphans. Do not take my soul. Let me nurse my babies, feed them, and set them on their feet before I die. Children cannot live without father or mother, and I hearkened to her. I placed one child at her breast and gave the other into her arms and returned to the Lord in heaven. I flew to the Lord and said, I could not take the soul of the mother. Her husband was killed by a fallen tree. The woman has twins and prays that her soul may not be taken. She says, let me nurse and feed my children and set them on their feet. Children cannot live without father or mother. I have not taken her soul. And God said, go take the mother's soul and learn three truths. Learn what dwells in man, what is not given to man, and what men live by. When thou hast learnt these things, thou shalt return to heaven. So I flew again to earth and took the mother's soul. The babies dropped from her breast. Her body rolled over on the bed and crushed one baby's leg, twisted the leg. I rose above the village, wishing to take her soul to God, but a wind seized me and my wings drooped 
and dropped off. Her soul rose alone to God while I fell to earth by the roadside. And Simon and Matrona understood who it was that had lived with them and whom they had clothed and fed. And they wept with awe and joy. And the angel said, I was alone in the field naked. I had never known human needs, cold and hunger, till I became a man. I was famished, frozen, and did not know what to do. I saw the field I was in, a shrine built for God. And I went to it hoping to find shelter. But the shrine was locked. And I could not enter, so I sat down behind the shrine to shelter myself, at least from the wind. Evening drew on. I was hungry, frozen, and in pain. Suddenly, I heard a man coming along the road. He carried a pair of boots and was talking to himself. For the first time since I became a man, I saw the mortal face of a man. And his face seemed terrible to me, and I turned from it. And I heard the man talking to himself of how to cover his body from the cold in winter, and how to feed wife and children. And I thought, I am perishing of cold and hunger, and here is a man thinking only of how to clothe himself and his wife, and how to get bread for themselves. He cannot help me. When the man saw me, he frowned and became still more terrible and passed me by on the roadside. I despaired, but suddenly I heard him coming back. I looked up and did not recognize the same man before I had seen death in his face. And now he was alive. And remember earlier, I told you about sorceries. And this is what I mean. The angel is telling him, he could sense the sorceries in him, and that's why he looked the way he did to him. I had seen death in his face, but now he was alive, and I recognized him, the presence of God. He came up to me, clothed me, took me with him, and brought me to his home. I entered the house. A woman came to meet us and began to speak. The woman was still more terrible than the man had been. The spirit of death came from her mouth. I could not breathe for the stench of death that spread around her. And I also want to share with you that some folks believe that gossip is actually black magic. When someone gossips in a social situation about someone else, they interject into that society a virus similar to that of a computer virus, hijacking someone's intelligence and mind, shutting them off, making complete disconnect and communication. And then they start to harbor this. Once they share this information with someone else, they then pass the virus onto them. And they too suffer from disconnect, miscommunication, distraughtness. This can happen in the workplace this can happen on a team of um, athletes. Gossip is black magic, and it is death. And when you talk about somebody, even if they're right there, and you don't know what them or what they're, you know, what they're about, you have no right. So you are spreading 
you know, evil sorceries, just like that too. The woman was still more terrible than the man had been. The spirit of death came from her mouth. I could not breathe for the stench of death that spread around her. She wished to drive me out into the cold, and I knew that if she did not did so, she would die. Suddenly, her husband spoke to her of God, and the woman changed at once. And when she brought me food and looked at me, I glanced at her and saw that death no longer dwelt in her. She had become alive, and in her too, I saw God. Then I remembered the first lesson God had sent me. Excuse me. Then I remembered the first lesson God had set me. Learn what dwells in man. And I understood that in man dwells love. And I understood. And I was glad that God had already begun to show me what he had promised, and I smiled for the first time, but I had not yet learnt all. I did not yet know what is not given to man and what men live by. I lived with you, and a year passed. A man came to order boots that should wear for a year without losing shape or cracking. I looked at him, and suddenly behind his shoulder, I saw my comrade, the angel of death. None but me saw that angel, but I knew him, and I knew that before the sun set, he would take that rich man's soul. And I thought to myself, the man is making preparations for a year and does not know that he will die before evening. And I remembered God's second saying, learn what is not given to man. And folks, I want to say that we still suffer from that today, that many people suffer from anxiety, and that's because we worry for what is to come. We worry about the future that you cannot control. And when you're depressed, you worry too much about the past and the things that have gone on, and it causes you to reminisce and want to go back to those times. But once you live or learn to live, in the present, that's when everything changes and you start to harness the power of living a true life that is really honestly true to yourself. And not a lot of people get that. What dwells in man, I already know, knew. Now I learned what is given to him. It is not given to man to know his own needs. And I smiled for the second time. I was glad to have seen my comrade, Angel. Glad also that God had revealed to me the second saying. But I still did not know all. I did not know what men live by. And I lived on, waiting till God should reveal to me the last season. In the sixth year came the girl twins with the woman. I recognized the girls and heard how they had been kept alive. Having heard the story, I thought their mother besought me for the children's sake, and I believed her when she said that children cannot live without father or mother. But a stronger, oh, excuse me, but a stranger has nursed them and has brought them up, 
And when the woman showed her love for the children that were not her own and wept over them, I saw in her the living God and understood what men live by. And I knew that God had revealed to me the last lesson and had forgiven my sin. And then I smiled for the third time. And I do want to share with you something that I've kept. I keep true to my heart and I have for many, many years since I've been brought up in the church as a kid because I am a Christian. And I do want to say that um, in the Bible, it says you're to honor your mother and father. And what people don't get about that part is it doesn't say that you should honor your mother when she is, you know, kissing your ass and giving you everything under the sun and spoiling you rotten. No, you're supposed to love your mother when she screams and yells at you and you're not at fault. You're supposed to love your mother when, you know, addiction grasps her so hard that she can't even understand who she is anymore. You know, you're supposed to honor your father, excuse the father, if I could talk. You're supposed to honor your father when, you know, he is also suffering from addiction issues or shortcomings or you know when he gets fired from a job for making a humanistic mistake that everyone makes but at that time he was let go and I wanted to share that with you because a lot of people don't get that they don't honor their mothers and fathers anymore they just toss them to the side and think that we don't need them we don't have to live without them well we do and you are the mom you are the dad you are right they the children are not to be telling you how life should be you are to tell them how it's to be and they are to listen and if they don't listen then you have to go back to the drawing board reorganize your thoughts and your mind and get things together for them and realize that there is some sort of disconnect there and that you, you need to lead them to honor your mother their mother and their father and not when it's convenient you know not when it's um uh, just a given, you know, respect is earned, but being a mother and a father, our children see us in different ways than anybody else sees us. And sometimes we're not always at our best, but we do deserve to be honored. We made you who fed you when you were three days old, who got up with you every single night and changed those diapers. Remember that kids, please do. Because if you don't, you will grow up into a world of lostness and, shortcomings i do believe that and the angel's body was bared and he was clothed in light so that i could not look on him and his voice grew louder as though it came not from him but from heaven above and the angel said i have learnt that all men live not by care for themselves but by love i was not given to the mother to know what her children needed for their life, nor was it given to the rich man to know what he himself needed, nor is it given to any man to know whether when evening comes he will need boots for his body or slippers for his corpse. I remained alive when I was a man, not by care of myself, but because love was present in a passerby and because he and his wife pitied and loved me. The orphans remained alive, 
not because of their mother's care, but because there was love in the heart of a woman, a stranger to them, who pitied and loved them. And all men live not by the thought they spend on their own welfare, but because love exists in man. Love and be loved. I knew before that God gave me to men and desires that they should live. Now I understood more than that. I understood that God does not wish men to live apart, and therefore he does not reveal to them what each one needs for himself, but he wishes them to live united, therefore reveals to each of them what is necessary for all. I have now understood that though it seems to men that they live by care for themselves, in truth it is love alone by which they live. He who has love is in God, and God is in him, and God is love. And the angel sang praise to God. Good God Almighty. Just kidding, just kidding. <laughs> so that the hut trembled at his voice. The roof opened, and a column of fire rose from earth to heaven. Simon and his wife and children fell to the ground. Wings appeared upon the angel's shoulders, and he rose into the heavens. And when Simon came to himself, the hut stood as before, and there was no one in it but his own family. Thank you guys for listening to the Only You podcast, and I hope you've enjoyed this read. Thank you for following me. Thank you for sharing me. Again, that's your boy, Lo Jackson, and I'm about to do another Leo Tolstoy uh, book in the coming days or story, please reach out, follow me. Like I said earlier, um, I do have, um, subscription to be a member of this podcast and there's a lot of books on there that I don't offer out here. So check me out, pay the 49 cents, subscribe and enjoy a lot more learning and understanding of the human mind, neural pathways, how to be a better person, maybe some coping skills. I was going to try to do that this whole season, but I decided that I am going to bounce around and just do random books because I have a scatterbrain, and when I learn about books or read them or I've read them, because sometimes I go back and I actually think about other books I've read along the way and what they meant to me, and sometimes I find it really odd that nobody reads anymore. I, I Even my own kids, I listen to them, and they... They start talking, and, I'm, and I ask them, so what books have you read to gain all this information? And they're like, none. So I find that interesting that we're um, pretty much raising a baseless society that if you don't go back and read books in your um, world's history, that you're losing out on information that is actually relevant today and you would be understanding all the conflicts and moral issues and divisions that are going on in the world between countries, between societies, between um, all these different entities that are out there that are actually causing a lot of suffering with the people. And it's unfortunate that people have no idea how powerful they really are inside of themselves and that they don't have to beat themselves up for that one mistake they made 
They can learn to um, become something better. Learn to find different ways to help yourself be more cognitive in your thinking, you know. And if you're having cognitive abilities in your mind, you know, like I told you earlier, I started checking out uh, ashwagandha. It was a stress and anxiety reliever. Um, I'm learning more about m mushrooms such as lion's mane, uh, reishi mushroom. When I was studying uh, nephrotic syndrome for my son who has four autoimmune diseases, um, I came across the, the reishi mushroom and it was being tested on nephrotic patients. And nephrotic syndrome is a kidney um, autoimmune disease, which it don't flare up all the time. My son hasn't had a flare up now in, you know, six or seven years. But specialists said that at one point in his 20s, he'll hit a wall and all these things will come back. The first time the flare up happened, I think he was 11. He's normally, at that time, he was normally 99 pounds soaking wet. And, um, I came downstairs and he was 300 pounds and I thought it was a robber. And I remember grabbing the baseball bat in the corner. I kept by the glass sliding door and he flipped the light on real. He'd, he'd get up slowly and flip the light on. And I seen that it was him. I was terrified, you know? So I obviously we rushed him to the hospital to get him checked out. And he was in the hospital for two months and, um, finally found out that that was going on the year before he was in the hospital and diagnosed with type one diabetes and it seemed every year he got diagnosed with another autoimmune diseases for four years straight. He actually had two specialists at one time that only have five patients in the whole world. And that's how rare my son is. So, you know, learning about adaptogens, if you don't know what an adaptogen is, ashwagandha is an adaptogen. And it helps actually it um, boost your... Um, sexual level and if you don't know this um, I want to share this little bit of information with you um, if you're not feeling sexual desires you're sick there's something wrong with you and I mean that um, ashwagandha helps in those areas um, like I said I have studied I've been taking this you know genius mind or the conscious mind by the brand genius I think it is it's really helping out on focus, mental awareness, getting me my uh, cognitive thinking and my neural pathways firing on all cylinders. I didn't realize that I was having a cognitive um, decline in the last few years from all the stress, all the sicknesses. It's like, you know, the greatest virus you can get is the actual virus itself because you're 2,000 times less likely to pretty much ever get that strand again. And if you get a strand that has similar characteristics of that first one, you're least likely to die from it. Um, thank you guys for listening to the Only You Podcast. Again, it's your boy, Lo Jackson. Have a good day.